0: Luke chapter 2 verse 21, Bible says, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the days of her, Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, Then took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Let's go to Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in your house. We have shared prayer requests, Lord, things that are beyond our capability, things that even if we could do something about them, Lord, we know that we could not do with them what you can. So give us, Lord, the faith. Give us the humility, the meekness. and Give us the patience to see your will Uh, done in our lives in these matters. Lord, help us to be prompt to obey you whenever an action is called for on our part. Help us to be content to wait on you when all you need from us is for us to wait patiently and in faith. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in these situations. Lord, that you would work on the hearts of our loved ones who maybe do not know Christ as their Savior or even some possibly that know Him, but they've never walked with Him the way that they should or grown in Him the way that they should. I pray, Lord, that you'd work in their hearts and lives I pray for those that are traveling, Lord. We know there's not a mile they'll go that you'll not be present with them. So we just ask that in your faithfulness, you continue to watch over them. Lord, we pray for those that are uh, sick at this time, that you would touch their bodies, heal them, raise them up. We know this is a time of year when sickness is battled. But Lord, you saw, uh, saw us through faithfully year after year. We know we can depend on you this year as well. And Lord, I just pray that you'd also be with those that are touched with grief this time of year, that you would comfort their hearts. Lord, and that You would make Your presence felt known in their life. Lord, we love You and we thank You for this time. And now as we draw our heart and attention upon Your Word, I pray that you use it mightily in our hearts and lives. And Father, that the Holy Ghost would have liberty to work in our midst this evening. And we'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in Luke chapter number 2, whenever I look at the first coming of Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly this man by the name of Simeon, there is one thought that sort of describes and characterizes his life. This is a man that was waiting on the birth of the Messiah. Whenever he saw this infant, he was not baffled, he was not confused, he was not taken aback at the notion that the Messiah would appear not as a conquering king ascending a throne, but rather as an infant child that would be being carried into the temple for the rite of circumcision. He has spent his entire life waiting in anticipation for this very moment. And now after much long waiting, after much patience, he is rewarded by the Lord by seeing this event take place. Uh, His life, or what we know of it at least, is characterized by this anticipation, by this intense focus that he maintains in his life and his dedication to this promise that was given him from God. And when I begin to think about that, I'm reminded of a parallel to the day that we're living in. You know, one of the things that confused the Jews whenever the Messiah came was that they could not understand. And even at that time into this very day, in a lot of rabbinical tradition, uh, they believe in the idea or the concept that you reconcile the seemingly disparate Old Testament prophecies with the idea that there would be two different Messiahs. There were some in Jesus' day that believed there would be a suffering Messiah and that there would be a conquering Messiah. Now, we know with the benefit of the Word of God that that's not true. The suffering Messiah is the conquering Messiah. Somebody say amen to that. But while we reconcile these two realities is the fact that no, there's not two Messiahs, but rather there are two appearings or comings that would take place regarding Him. Uh, The same truth, by the way, is true about the second coming of the Lord. There are some that have great confusion Because they'll say, well, preacher, the Bible says that he's going to come in the clouds. How can he come on a white horse if he's going to come in the clouds? I agree with you, he's coming in the clouds. Somebody say amen to that. But the same person could say, well, how can he come in the clouds if the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19 he's coming on a white horse? And I believe he's coming on a white horse. You say, preacher, how do we reconcile those two things? Well, the same way that the rabbis should have reconciled it in the day of Christ. Instead of trying to divide the personhood of Christ They should have recognized that there was simply two comings then and there will be two returns in our day. In other words, the rapture will take place when he comes in the cloud for his bride for the New Testament church. And then seven years later, he'll come in power and in glory on the back of a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood and a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This confusion led to them missing something in their day. And I'm reminded when I consider, here's this man, But in the midst of a world that is confused, that is oblivious to what's taking place, here is a man that took his Bible, read it, read it truly, rightly, and changed his life to conform to it. And his whole life was defined by his waiting for this moment. In the same way, I would say this, that the way that Simeon waited for the first coming teaches us something about how we ought to be waiting for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand there are going to be some meaningful differences between those two comings. I understand that the first time he came as a babe in a manger and I understand that when he comes and the world sees him, when he comes at that appearing on a white horse, he's not coming back as a babe in a manger. He's not coming back as a meat Galilean shepherd. He's coming as a conquering king. But just the same, just as Simeon waited, so we too are waiting for the second coming. And if you really think about it, it's not that far off of an application. Think about it with me this way. Why does this time remind us? I mean, this time meaning the time of the, of the birth of the Lord Jesus. In what ways does it remind us of our times? I jotted down three things. One, this was a time of societal decline. It was a time when society at its very core was unraveling all around them. A time when society was becoming more and more depraved. If you study the history of the Roman Empire, you know that in the long storied history of that empire, it would not be long after this point and things would be thrown into political and societal disarray in that empire. It was a time even at this season, whenever decadence and immorality and ungodliness had crept in and become a rot in the Roman Empire, and all of society is defined by this societal decline that's taking place. It sort of looks like when we look out the window, doesn't it? At a country... Are you with me tonight? You okay? It ain't Christmas yet. You don't eat too many Christmas cookies. And you ain't got enough room to burp and amen. So if you got to choose, go ahead and burp. Somebody say amen. It was a time when society was falling all to pieces. Man, we look around and the Bible told us it would be this way, that uh, perilous times would come. We're living in days of perilous times. We keep hearing this phrase, new normal. Uh, that's a phrase you ought to be terrified of because new normal means that old normal ain't never going to come back. And now they're starting to say it. They're not just implying it. They're starting to say that there will never be that old normal. We are in times of upheaval just as they were in the days of Christ. Not only that, but it was a time of spiritual darkness. If you look at this time in Israel's history, uh, the voice of the prophets had been silent for 450 years. The priesthood had been relegated to a hollowed out form of ceremonialism relative to the richness that it once held. And the people were so oblivious to the truths that the word of God contained that when faced with the Messiah, they couldn't even recognize. In other words, Judaism in the days of Christ looked a lot like Christianity starting to look in our day. A time when the church sadly has forfeited her place of influence and power and authority. And I don't mean that through lobbying. I don't mean it through being a moral majority, but I mean it through the power of revival and the gospel of Jesus Christ, a consecrated testimony and witness. The church has ceded all of that to the world. It is a time when people are biblically ignorant. It is a time when people are hostile, openly hostile to biblical teaching. We are living in a time of spiritual darkness. But I'd remind you that just as in... This day, that time, was a time of scriptural designation. so Preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean this. God had ordained that society would be in this shape when He brought the Messiah the first time. And can I remind you that there's nothing happening around us that moves God one millimeter from His throne. None of it takes Him by surprise. None of, none of it worries Him. It grieves Him because wickedness grieves Him. And people choosing wickedness grieves Him because He loves them. But it does not, it does not upset him in the sense of his plans and his confidence in what he is doing in this world. He, we may be surprised when every day is wickeder than the day before, but God is not. He understood that it would be this way and told us in his word that these perilous times would come where evil men and seducers would wax worse and worse and worse. And when you look at a world that is on fire and rocking and reeling, that should not make you think your Bible is not true. It should prove to you that your Bible is true. So just as in that day, in this day, we're living in a similar time and we are waiting, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They were waiting, this first appearing, this first incarnation, this first manifestation of him. And now we, as members of the body of Christ, we are waiting for him to appear in heaven to uh, gather his bride unto himself and then to return seven years later to manifest himself to the world. So what can we learn from Simeon? I want you to notice a few things in our text tonight that I hope will encourage us in these times of waiting for the Lord's return. Notice with me verse number 25. The Bible says, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Let me just pause there. This ain't in my notes, but I just want to say it because it's true and I want to say it. You know the word, the, the name Simeon, it means heard from the Lord. Heard from the Lord. Whenever his mama named him that, he na- she named him that because she said, now the Lord hath heard me. She names him Simeon, a man whose name denotes the idea of prayer being answered. This isn't in my notes, but you're going to get this one for free. Count it a Christmas present, amen? Uh, the, uh, I would say we need to be a prayerful people during these times. We need to be praying. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be praying for the work of God. We need to be praying for all sinners. We need to be praying for God to be glorified and magnified in our lives and the lives of others. We need to faithfully pursue and storm after the principle of prayer. Uh, Part of the weakness of the church has contributed to the fact that she's all but give up on prayer. Prayer has become a formality. Uh, Prayer has become of no more fundamental importance to the operation of a church than any manner of trivial traditions that a church may adopt and allow to hang around its institution. And prayer has become the same thing. It's just something we do because it's something we do. It's not something we do because we believe in it. It's something we do because that's just what you do, right? You're going to have church going... Pray before uh, the church starts. You're gonna gonna pray when an offering's took up. your preacher's gonna pray before he preaches. Preacher's gonna pray. We're gonna dismiss, and it's just become a mere formality. Now you say, preacher, are you saying we shouldn't pray at those times? No, I'm saying we should pray more at those times. We should pray deeper at those times. We should pray more deliberate and specific at those times. We ought to pray more passionately at those times. So that ain't in my notes, but I'm just gonna say it anyway. We see the prayer that he had. Then number two, I want you to notice, verse 25, we see the purity that he had. The Bible says that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the Bible makes this statement about this man's character. The same man was just and devout. In other words, this is a man that had a godly lifestyle. It's interesting the way the Bible uses both of those words because though not synonymous, there is some overlap between the two. To be a just man, to be a devout man, particularly in the biblical context, denotes someone that has a reverence towards the Word of God and the commandments of God. But I would say this, that inasmuch as the Holy Spirit is drawing a distinction between these two ideas, we could say these two things about him. Number one, he was pure in his dealings with men. When the Bible says just, it denotes someone that is fair-minded. It denotes someone that is righteous in his dealings with people, someone that is equitable, someone uh, that has ethical uh, character and ethical decisions in his life. In other words, here is a man that because he was waiting for the Messiah, and by the way, that to Simeon meant the idea that a kingdom was going to be set up. To him, what that would have meant that the Messiah was coming is the Messiah is going to come and then as he comes into adulthood, whatever else may take place and transpire, a kingdom will be introduced, a new regiment will take place, a new regime will step into authority and new rules of law will be exercised. And because of that, and he believed with all of his heart that he was going to see the king. He said, I better make sure that I'm dealing well with the people I deal with. You know, the truth of the matter is this, that in our lives, if we really believe that the next moment Christ could come back and we have to answer to him for the way we treat one another, it's going to change the way that we behave and the way that we act. It's going to cause us to consider our decisions, realizing that we could literally be a heartbeat away from having to stand before God and give an account for the way that we have lived. It's amazing how we do this trick in our mind as though we're never going to have to reckon with the decisions and choices we make. But you see, as a Bible believer, saved by the grace of God in this dispensation, we are robbed of that luxury because if we really believe our Bibles, we really believe it could be the next moment that we have to give an account. I would say he was uh, pure in his dealings with men, but then too, in his devotion towards God. The Bible says this, he was just and devout. Now the word devout is a distinctly religious term. In this context, it denotes someone that is committed to, to his uh, to his oaths and his covenants with God. In other words, he is a man that viewed his responsibilities to God with a sacred commitment and responsibility. This is a man that did not take light how he dealt with God. I wonder how differently we would treat God if we knew that we might see him in the very next moment. I'm talking about me tonight. I'm not, I'm preaching at me and if a little bit of it gets on you, I guess that'll be good. But let me preach at me a little bit. Wonder, I wonder what it would change if we knew that we in the next few moments could have to stand face to face with God. Wonder if we'd make more time for Him. Wonder if we'd give Him more right away in our life. Wonder if we would exalt Him, put Him on a pedestal more, make Him, make Him preeminent in our lives more. If we knew that in the next moment we may stand face to face with you know, John told us this same truth in First John chapter 3. He said this, Behold what manner of love, verse 1, the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Do you notice the the concrete certainty with which the Holy Ghost says that? He does not say every man that hath this hope in him should purify himself. He does not say every man that hath this hope in him might purify himself. He says every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. Now the distinction being this, it's possible to academically affirm a truth without practically embracing it. It's possible to say, I know this is true, but not live your life in light of that reality. And I would say this, man, everybody, everybody around here that say, I believe Jesus is coming soon. When you say it, I believe you when you say it. I mean, I don't doubt that one bit. If I was to give you a quiz, you'd get that answer right. Undoubtedly. But I wonder if our life tells that same testimony. I would say that Simeon was a good example when we look at the purity that he displayed. But then look at verse 25, the next phrase. What did he spend his time doing? He spent his time waiting for the consolation of Israel. I noticed the patience that he displayed. Now this is interesting. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and the same man was just and about waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, the thing that characterized this man's activity was this, this overshadowing reality of the imminent return or the imminent appearance, we should say, in his situation of the Messiah. Now, does that mean that if you had walked up to Simeon, all he would ever do is just be sitting there idling around, doing nothing, and you'd walk up and say, hey, Simeon, what are you doing today? And he'd say, well, I'm just waiting. Does it mean that he never undertook any responsibilities or any tasks? Does it mean that all he did was just sit in the temple loafing about? No, I don't believe that. I believe he was a man that went about what business was his responsibility to be into, but I do believe that everything he did had within it a concept a shadow over it of this imminent coming and manifestation of the Messiah you know what a good testimony is way we're supposed to live our lives you have responsibilities I have responsibilities it's not like God has called us to be a bunch of monks in monasteries, uh, sitting up in a mountain somewhere with a vow of silence upon us, sitting around, uh, you know, chanting or, or uh, you know, writing out uh, dusty old manuscripts of this Latin uh, book or that Latin poem. That's not what God called us to. Uh, you don't find that anywhere in Bible Christianity. We are to be about the Father's business, but as we are being about the Father's business, we ought to never lose sight of the Father's plan. We want to make sure that in our life, as we are living for the Lord, as we are going about our day, as we are carrying out our responsibilities, that all of them project and telegraph this patience that He had. He never set His tent stakes too deep because He understood that the Messiah was coming and that everything could change in just a moment. This is a man who is an aged man. He is not a young man. And he has lived his life and let it be defined by the reality of this truth that he is convinced of in his heart and in his soul. And he never gave up hope on that reality. Because he never did, there came a day that that hope was realized. I don't know if you or I are going to live to see the rapture. I don't have a crystal ball. Any man that tells you they can puzzle it out from God's Word is lying to you. Because the Bible says that no man knoweth the day nor the hour, not even the sun. And the Word is the written version of the living Word who is the Lord Jesus. So if the living Word doesn't know, the written Word doesn't contain the answer. Anybody that tells you they know when He's coming back, they're selling you something. You don't know. I don't know. But I would say in our lives that uh, as we live for the Lord, the transformative power of that truth, whether we live to see the rapture or not, will change and shape and inform our lives the same way that it did Simeon's. For him, he eventually saw what he was longing for and waiting for. And guess what? You and I will eventually see what we are longing for and waiting for. We'll see him as he is. It may be through the undertaker. It may be through the upper path. But we're going to see him one way or the other. And we need never lose sight, perspective, focus, or patience concerning that reality. I see the patience that he displayed, but then I see the persuasion that he had. Look at verse number 25. The Bible says the Holy Ghost was upon him. This is interesting. This is actually one of three statements regarding his relationship to the Holy Spirit that is made in verse 25, 26, and 27. Verse 25 says the Holy Ghost was upon him. In other words, this is a man that was influenced by the Holy Ghost. Because he believed that Messiah could come at any moment, he recognized the imperative uh, nature and reality of letting his life be subjected to the Holy Spirit of God. And I would say if our life is to be that which would please Him when He appears. And I'm not saying your salvation is predicated on this. I'm thankful that my salvation is based upon God's Word, based upon God's promise, based upon the finished work of Christ on Calvary. But I do believe that if my life is to be pleasing to Him, something He can be proud of, something He can be grateful in, something that He can be encouraged by, then it's only going to be through the Spirit of God directing and influencing my life. He was influenced by the Holy Ghost. He allowed the Spirit of God to lead and direct Him. Not only that, verse 26 tells us He was informed by the Holy Ghost. The Bible says it was revealed unto Him by the Holy Ghost. In other words, the things He learned about God, He learned through the revelation of the Spirit of God. I want to be very, very careful with what I'm about to say here. When I'm talking about the revelation of the Spirit of God, uh, some people prefer to use the term illumination or enlightenment. I'm not talking about anything that ain't found in your Bible. This is His book. When He wants to talk to you, He's going to talk to you with this book. But I am saying this, if we are to have a right understanding of it and a right appreciation and application of it in our lives, it's going to take the tutelage of the Holy Ghost of God. He said this, he said, how will I know what he looks like when he comes if I'm not listening to the one that knows him best? I would say there is a flip side to that in your life and mine. Though we understand that as uh, members of the body of Christ, we're not going to be present for the tribulation period. We also know that we're living in time where though the Antichrist might not be revealed, there are already many Antichrists in the world, many false prophets, many seducing spirits. And if we want our life to be what it needs to be and our doctrine to be correct and our testimony to be righteous, then we need to recognize almost the inverse of it. He needed to know what he looked like when we came. We need to know what they look like when they show up. In other words, his life was informed by the Holy Ghost because he knew how imperative it was that he had the teaching of God in his life to recognize the Messiah when he came. In your life and mine, though, we don't have to worry about whether we'll recognize him because he's not coming and asking who's a part of the body. He knows who part of the body is. Amen. He knows who the body is. I would say that in our lives, if we're to live a life that is correct, and if we are to live a life that is not stained by false doctrine, by permissive lifestyle, by wickedness inwardly or outwardly, we need a life that is taught by the Holy Ghost to God. We need to live in this book. The Word of Christ needs to dwell in us richly. We need the Spirit of God governing us. Not only that, verse 27 tells us He was instigated by the Holy Ghost. The Bible says He came by the Spirit into the temple. In other words, He went where He went because the Spirit of God told Him to. So it's one thing to have a life that is broadly influenced by the Holy Ghost. But in the minutia of everyday life, It's not just the Holy Ghost was upon him. But when the Spirit of God said, go, Simeon said, yes, sir. When the Spirit of God said, stop, he said, yes, sir. When the Spirit of God said, go this way, he said, I'll go that way. When he said, turn around and go this way, he said, I'll go that way. In the minutia of his life, he was prompted and instigated by the Holy Ghost of God. We in our lives, if we want to not be ashamed at his appearance, then we have to allow the Spirit of God to govern and direct our lives. And this maybe is a truth bigger than just in the context of what we're preaching tonight. But I would say this, that if we want the life of Christ manifest in us, it will only be by the Spirit of Christ, which is the Spirit of God, having the governance, the right-of-way, the authority, the jurisdiction in our lives. Simeon was a remarkable man, and by the way, markedly different than the society in which he lived. You know why that is? Because society changes. Culture changes, but the Holy Ghost never changes. The Word of God never changes. God Himself never changes. God the Son never changes. They never change. He's the Lord God, He changeth not. And so he was a different sort of man. Why? Because he was not persuaded by the same things that persuaded others. So I'd say the persuasion he had. But Then look at verse 26. The Bible says it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What made this man so different in the way he lived his life? Here is a man that lived and had no fear of death. There's not very many people it could be said of in the Word of God that the reality of death being imminent or no man knowing tomorrow would they would be exempted from. Peter would be one of those men. Peter knew and understood that he was going to die as an old man. And Simeon, inasmuch as he could cling to this promise, knew At least that death could not claim him until first this event happened in his life. I would say he was different because of the promise that he had. He had certain promises from God that made him a different sort of man in the way that he lived. And it's amazing to consider the inverse of these things in our lives. So here's a man that says, death's authority is restrained because I have not yet seen the Lord's anointing. You and I have the, opposite side of that. We get to say that death's authority is restrained because we have seen the Lord's anointing. In other words, he lived in the power and strength of a hobbled foe, recognizing that death could only claim him when God said death could claim him. By the way, it wasn't it wasn't only after Calvary that God got control of death. He was the master of death at all times. He had control ultimately over it at all times. Christ proved that outside the tomb of Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And there wasn't anything death could do about it. Likewise here in Simeon's life, God looked down at death and we understand that death is not a personage, but he looked at the forces of death, the influences of death, and almost the same way that he set the bounds of the sea, he set the bounds of death in Simeon's life and said, you can proceed no further. Until I show this man mine anointed. In other words, he lived differently because here's a man that has conquered death. And you and I, we ought to be living differently because we're a people that have conquered death. Or we might say it this way, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. He has conquered death for us. So he had a promise that death's authority would be restrained. Number two, that God's anointed would be revealed. So he's not living waiting for the next heart attack to take. He's not living and waiting Uh, for the next stroke or aneurysm to lay him low. He's living saying, I'm not looking for death. I'm looking for the Lord. And in the same way, in your life and mine, we ought to be living, not looking for death. I can't promise you death won't come. But we should not be living our life in fear, cowering from death, but in faith, having conquered death and looking for the soon coming of the Lord. Every one of us is but a heartbeat away from death, never being able to get its hands on us. What a glorious power that is to live in. And that ought to change the way that we live. So the promise that he had, look at verse 27. I, I would say that we ought to notice the place that he went. The Bible says he came by the Spirit. Where? Into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, we'll stop there. Verse 27. Notice where he, notice where he went because he believed the Messiah was coming, and he knew that one way or another, I don't think he necessarily anticipated that he would come as a babe in a manger, but he knew when the Messiah shows up, first thing he's doing is he's going to go to church. So he said, I'm going to go to church, because if I expect him to show up, I ought to be where I think he's going to show up at. This is a distinct biblical principle, that the people of God, if we really believe Christ is returning, that should spur us to a greater devotion to the house of God. Notice where he went and think about with me Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Now, wait a minute. That's where preachers always want to stop, right? Don't quit on church. Don't quit on church. Don't quit on church. Let's read a little further. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We shouldn't be having less church, friend. If we believe he's coming back soon, we ought to be having more church. We shouldn't be figuring out ways to get out. We should be figuring out ways to get in. We should be trying to find ways to do more for God. Not saying, well, He's coming back soon, so what does it matter anyway? Notice not only where He went, but notice how He went. He came by the Spirit into the temple. <laughs> in other words, He went in the influence and power of the Holy Ghost. To Him, going into the temple, at least on that day, was not a mere poor nor was it a dead experience. He went accompanied by the one whose house it was. You know, you and I, when we go to church, our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. We go accompanied by the one whose house it is. When we go to church, it should not be something that is done merely as formality, duty, or obligation, but it should be something that's done in spirit and in life and in passion and in zeal and in anticipation and excitement. We really believe He's coming soon. Hey, listen, boy, I want to say this carefully because I don't want to say something God don't say. But if we're supposed to be like the Lord, if following the Word of God makes us more like God, right? We're to pr- pursue after holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. All right, without holiness no man shall see God. We're to be like God more and more and more as we see the day approaching. Is that correct? Am I right? So that means if God expects us to show up at church more, I guess He plans on showing up at church more. In other words, the closer we get to it, the more intense and sincere we should get in our worship and the more faith and anticipation we should have that God wants to work in the life of His people. And of course He would because the time is short. It's shorter now than it's ever been before. So of course there will be an urgency about God's working in His people's lives if they'll allow it. Then notice the proximity that He held. Verse 28, the Bible says this, "...then took him up in his arms and blessed God and said..." And He goes on, we'll describe as a last point those last few verses and what he declared, what he he proclaimed. But I want you to notice this proximity he had. When he saw him, he did not stand at a distance. I thought about this when I read this, and I thought, this is just like an older person. Older people love babies. And a lot of that is because they're done raising. Amen? Younger people, we're still dealing with ours, alright? And we just ain't got time for that. But I thought, that is such an older person thing to do. He sees this precious baby, And he comes up and he says, let me hold that baby. And he takes that baby in his arms and he lifts it up and he blesses the Lord. But there was something highly figurative in what he's doing here. I would like for you to notice, number one, his desire to embrace this child. He didn't want to be at a distance from him. When he saw him, he wanted to be as close to him as he possibly could be. I'd say if we're serious that the Lord's coming back, it's going to make us want to draw closer unto him. Not be at a distance, not like Peter later on would do in following afar off, but draw nigh unto God, believing and knowing He'll draw nigh unto us. We really believe He's coming soon. We want to be close to Him. We want to be close to Him. You ever have a friend? I don't know if you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Did you ever have one of those friends in your life that you just saw him once or twice a year? But when you saw him, it was like you'd never left him. And did you ever notice, at least this was my experience with friends like that, I might not talk to them hardly at all. But if I knew we was going to see each other, all of a sudden, my phone would start ringing. They'd be calling me. I'd start calling them. And in the weeks leading up to it or the days leading up to it, there would be almost a rekindling, a warming of that friendship in anticipation of that reunion. It's not that we didn't love each other at other times. We're saying, man, we're going to get to see each other soon. And we'd all of a sudden want to start talking and drawing close again. I think there's a similarity in the life of the believer. The closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the more we ought to be drawing nigh unto and warming that relationship up with Him. Notice not only His desire to embrace Him, but look what He says, Then took He Him up in His arms and blessed God and said... In other words, He took Him and lifted Him along and said, This is the Christ child. Notice not only His desire to embrace Him, but His desire to exalt Him. He wanted to say, Can you believe what we've got here? Everybody look how wonderful this child is. Look at who we found. Look at who it is. It's the one we've always looked for. Look at him and behold the Lord's salvation. Man, we really believe he's coming soon. We're going to want to do the same thing. We're going to want to find everybody we can and say, look, look him whom we found. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. He's coming soon. Do you know him? He didn't want to stay distant from him. You wanted to embrace him. And he wanted others to see how wondrous he was. And look with me at verse 29 down through verse 32. We'll just do this all in one thought and we'll be done. Verse 29, this is what he says, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. I notice the priority that he maintained. Or we could say priorities because there's really two that he has here. The first one is in verse number 29. Here is a man whose priority, whose focus, whose purpose was to be satisfied with the Lord's will for his life. Uh, you may know this. I, I would venture that particularly those that might have a little bit of road behind them would. But you see people that you love that get to a place in life where all they want is to go home. They hurt, they suffer, maybe they're lonely, maybe they're tormented by things. Whatever it is, all they want is to be able to go home. I've had shut-ins and I could tell you names that their greatest prayer, and they'd ask me to preach pray, the Lord will take me home. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm, I'm unhappy or I'm hurting or I'm sad or whatever it is they'd say, I just want to go home. And I, I always hate to do it, but I always have to tell them the same thing. Well, I'm praying for that, but it's going to have to just be in the Lord's time. The Lord knows when. The Lord knows what's best. Here is a man that had lived as a man out of time and out of place for his whole life. He did not understand the society he lived in and the society he lived in did not understand him. And I'm sure there's nothing he would have longed for more than to be able to live this, leave this wicked world. But instead, his task was to wait patiently for the Lord to bring his time to pass. Here is a man who, despite whatever ambitions he may have had, said, I am content to just wait until the word of the Lord is fulfilled in my life. You know, the imminence of the Lord's return does a funny thing to a man's ambitions. It doesn't rob him of ambitions. The more that you really appropriate that truth, doesn't rob you of ambitions, but it does adjust your ambitions. Things like accruing money and accruing influence, building legacy. None of that really matters because you know that could all be gone in a moment. Instead, what matters is things like laying up treasures in heaven, like having a good testimony and a good name that reflects good on the Lord Jesus Christ and like living a life that is pleasing to him when he comes. It does a funny thing with a man's ambition. Simeon is a man who is only characterized by his contentment to wait on the Lord. Why is that? Because he believed the Messiah could come at any moment. And when the Messiah came, everything was going to change. Can I tell you in your life and mine, we really believe He's coming back at any moment. I'm not saying that we can have no goals or no plans regarding this life. And I don't even believe that God's Word either either commands or even permits us to live a life so reckless as that. But it will change our priorities such that we're not going to spend all of our time focusing on those temporal things. Because we know those things could be stripped out from under us in even a moment. Instead, we're going to live our life on eternal his priority was to be satisfied with the Lord's will for his life, and then number two, to be satisfied with the Lord's work in his life. It's interesting to me. For mine, let's back up, read verse twenty-nine. Lord, now let us, thou thy servant, depart in peace. He means to die. That's what he means. Who says depart in peace? He means to die, according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Can I ask you a question? But what was it going to do for Simeon? What was it going to do for him? He's an old man who knows that in the face of what is life to everyone else, he has read death for himself. He knows that now he's getting ready to die because he's seen the Christ child. And his only and sole goal Like Moses on Mount Pisgah was just to glimpse it. He won't, in his mind, live through a moment of that kingdom. He won't see him crowned. He won't see him worshipped. He won't see any of that. He won't see the miracles. He won't see the mighty power. He won't see the glory return to Israel or the light, light, in the Gentiles. He won't see any of that. But you see, it doesn't matter to him because what God desired to do with, in, and through his life was enough for Simeon. He said, if this is my role, if this is my part, is just to be here like a witness, like a crier in the night, just says, here he is, here he is, then that's enough for me if that's what God has for me. I wonder if we're willing to be satisfied with the Lord's work in our life. I wonder if the things we're praying for, if God doesn't bring them to pass, we would be angry at. If, If the goals and ambitions we have God never brings to fruition because it's just not His will and not His desire. I wonder if we can still love Him. I wonder if we can still cherish Him. Simeon's a great example. You know why? Because he recognized that this thing wasn't about him. It wasn't about Simeon. It was about the Savior. It wasn't about the man. It was about the Messiah. And he was contented to say, whatever God wants out of my life, I'm, I'm satisfied with that. Whatever His will is and whatever He wants to accomplish, I'm okay with that. Because it's not about me, it's about him. Man, this is a guy that really understood what it was to believe the Messiah was coming soon. I wonder if our life says the same thing that Simeon's life does. I wonder if people could look at our life the way they could Simeon's and say, now there's a man that believes that his Lord is coming soon. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I want to pray and I want you to have an opportunity to speak to the Lord tonight. There might have been one of these areas that God dealt with you about. And if He did, don't wait. Don't, don't, don't argue with the Holy Ghost. Don't make excuses. Just meet the Lord down at this altar and let Him have His will and let Him work His way in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. I ask it in His name.